Welcome to Brain and Avat. We are a rather aggressive show that's hostile to ideas, but we've been blackmailed by one of our uh, opponents in the, the podcasting realm. We have Cliff Mark, who's a really wonderful philosopher who runs an exceptionally good, and he's paying me to say this show, called Good in Theory. Cliff, we're going to be talking about uh, Plato's Republic. Would you like to start with a thought experiment? Sure. So put yourself in the position of living in this city. There is many producers. Most of the people in the city are working in productive labor, trades, farming like that, but you are part of the elite. You are one of the auxiliaries. You're a warrior. You live on a high hill overlooking the city from which you make sure that everyone follows the rules. And there's just a few rules for you to follow. You can't own any property. You can't have your own family. You take all your dinners in a communal dining hall with the other citizens. All of your children by birth, you don't know. They're shared with the entire community. You spend all of your time training and you can't own any gold or your own home. Now, how do you feel about being in the ruling elite compared to being in the producer class? So there's something deeply disconcerting about this notion. In our modern society, the things that we are committed to the most, I'd say it first goes iPhone and then your children. So if I don't get either of those, that doesn't seem like a good deal. Is this really the kind of society I'd like to be living in? In fairness, I would add that you wouldn't be able to look at anything on your iPhone anyway, because all of your culture is deeply censored and completely constructed of government propaganda. So is this the kind of society that would produce iPhones at all? So it seems like in a free market, that's the kind of setup you need to create the demand that, that produces the supply for iPhones and the technological advances. In this kind of society, would we even produce iPhones? Well, that's a fabulous question. And the answer is, of course, no. So the society that we're talking about, of course, is Calipolis, the Sidian speech from Plato's Republic. And the way you get to this ideal city in the progression that happens in the Republic is he starts with this very simple city where everyone has what they need. Glaucon gets angry, they move to a city of luxury. What if we have dancing girls, flute music, pastry, iPhones, obviously, are part of that dialectic of desire. We are getting more and more products, starting an empire. But the city in speech is pulling back. It's getting rid of all the things you don't need, the needless desires. So there is no way really to get to an iPhone because even the rulers in the society are just eating lentils every night and uh, never buy new clothes. So they're, they're, they're not going to get to smartphones nor even have the desires to, to have them. So what's the appeal of a city like this? Why would we want to live in a society like this? Haven't you ever used one of those apps where you uh, protect yourself from your own iPhone? <laughs> Turn off the internet, try to get some thinking done, maybe do some writing with the Wi-Fi off. The appeal is ultimately that you're going to free yourself of these distracting desires that might eventually rule your life. That is the project of the Republic, or at least one of the big projects that Socrates is taking on. It doesn't sound very appealing to a lot of people, but I think that's that's the excitement of the book, right? You present this city that is repellent sounding to live in. Anyone who lives in a modern democracy or an ancient democracy in Athens does not want to live this life, really. But 
Nonetheless, Socrates is arguing that there's something there. His whole game is to paint this horrible picture and then pull you back and make you think, huh, maybe there is something to that. So I can imagine if you have a wife you don't like, and if you have an iPhone addiction and you just sit there all day scrolling, that this might be appealing, right? You're like, I really want that divorce and I wish I could get rid of my wife and I wish I could get rid of my kids, maybe a really bad dad as well. Then this kind of setup sounds great. So the state protects you from your wife, your kids, your iPhone, any material possessions you have, et cetera. Great. But you might not hate your wife and you might love having kids and you might love having an iPhone and maybe it's really useful for creating your podcast. You take notes on your iPhone when you're walking through the square and you, okay, they didn't have iPhones back then, but the point is today we do. And if you were to apply this Plato's Republic to today's world, we would have to remove an enormous number of the things we want, which granted, sometimes we don't want what's good for us, but it seems like sometimes we do. And so the competing interests here are our freedom, so the freedom to want what's bad for you and to want what's good for you versus paternalism, letting the state say, I know what's good for you. I know at least on average what's good for the populace. I'll help you design your ideal life. I think Socrates would say, it's not just that you're giving up the things that you want. What he wants you to give up is the wants themselves. So ultimately what he's saying is these desires all these things that you want and that you enjoy, your good relationship with your wife and kids is a distraction. It's taking you away from virtue. It's taking you away from public service. And it's taking you away, most importantly, from philosophy and contemplation. So as a matter of fact, you started that out with, I could understand why you might want to live in the city if you didn't like your family and you had an iPhone addiction. But I don't think that's true. I think most people would just imagine a better life for themselves where their material circumstances are better. If you don't like your family, maybe you want a new one. If you have a problem with your iPhone, maybe you just will get a laptop or something. I don't know. But what the whole city and speech is trying to do is get you off that train altogether to distract you, uh, to take away all these distractions about things that bother you, things that you want, things you desire, that whole category of appetites. Let's get away from it. Let's do some contemplation, do some geometry, contemplate the form of the good, and we will be basking in the light of the forms. Now, not all of us have experience with that. I don't. It seems transcendent and weird, but that's what he's trying to tell these kids in the story. So let's try and give Plato some credit, right? This isn't something that's totally abstract. I think some people have sought inspiration in the city. So we can think of a couple of examples, and I'll start with uh, a pleasant one. So if you think about the state of Israel, you've got a group of people who've you know, escaped the Holocaust who are trying to start this new state. They start in the middle of the desert and they use this kibbutz structure where no one owns anything. There is no private property. We're going to build this thing up together. We're a community. We're going to be led by some wise people, but we're going to be very egalitarian as well. We all see each other in some way as having some kind of equality. There was no private property, even with regards to your clothes. Children were kept separate. So you might have had, in other words, communal rearing. And kibbutzes were very useful for building up a nation state in a very short period of time. And you might think it was a useful transitionary measure. Here's where those ideas start to get more and more perverse is if I think about communist Russia. So 
this notion of we've got the vanguard who we must trust. So we've got Stalin, we've got Lenin, and they're the enlightened elders, and they're the philosopher kings who know what's best for us. And that includes what we read, uh, what we think about, what should be produced. We must have a century-driven economy. Uh, we shouldn't have a free market. And of course, you wind up with mass starvation. You wind up with people being sent to gulags who've done the wrong thing in the eyes of the elders. And ultimately, a system like communism deals in the deaths of 100 million people, if you include the Chinese experiment in it as well. So there's something incredibly, let's say, fascist in these sorts of cities because you've got this ruling elite. But Plato tries to imagine that these rulers in his world wouldn't become corrupted, that they would be good rulers. And what is What are the safeguards that he has in mind? I might take exception and say that there are maybe bad things about the project of Israel and good things about the project of Soviet Russia, but overall, I'll take that. And what I want to say is that I pushed this in the podcast, which is I do not think that Plato's Republic is a policy guide. I really do not believe that he's advocating the policies that they make up in this thought experiment in the city and speech, right? He says the best way to make this happen is to banish everyone in the city over 10 so we can have full brainwashing on the children that remain. So he wants to break up all the families. No one's going to go for this. It would obviously be hugely catastrophic if anyone actually tried to just put this into effect. And I think Socrates and Plato both know that. But the reason that he's bothering with these thought experiments is because I think that it's supposed to expose something about how politics actually works and especially how politics works in Athens. So to say that we have to give all this up is a way of pointing to, to say, give up property, give up private families, things like this. To say that we have to go give those things up is more of a way to point to the problems that they cause in actually existing society. So factions, family divisions, et cetera, can occur in Athens. One thing you mentioned is what about the safeguards? What do you what do you put in to safeguard if these people are going to have all this power? We don't want hundreds of millions of dead. The safeguard, like, so Rousseau, he says Plato's Republic is not about politics. It's a treatise on education. And so that's the big safeguard. And again, I don't think this is a serious policy, but the thought experiment is, look, what if we have people that we can't constrain by force and law? How can we constrain them? Let's give them the most elaborate, complicated, complete, thorough education that we can so they become virtuous philosophical rulers. So if you can't put the safeguards in institutions and law like we do in modern philosophy, we put them right in people's souls through education, through censoring Homer, and uh, and so on. So that's very interesting. It, it sounds like what this ideal city is meant to represent is a certain set of values, which you're trying to inculcate through educating the upcoming generation. Okay. So what I'm curious about is what are those values? What is it that you're trying to inculcate? You've mentioned a few so far. You've mentioned that you want to get off this desire train, this sort of lifestyle of accumulating things you desire and focus more on, you said, the good and ideas. Could you speak a bit more about that? What is it that we would be teaching these children? Um, so I can give you a fairly precise answer from the book, and then I want to explain a little what it's like. Socrates is a little bit cagey, right? His general answer of what do you teach them winds up being so abstract, you still don't know what to teach them. It's the good. They need to know what justice is and how to be virtuous. He never really 
he cashes it out in practical terms, but that's because he's Socrates. He doesn't know the answer to exactly what they, but in this perfect city, he has a pretty specific curriculum, right? He, he starts them off as children with a music and gymnastic. So their souls are both harmonious and brave. They're supposed to tune the soul. They do that till they come of age. And then they start this curriculum of arithmetic, then plain geometry, then solid geometry, then astronomy, then harmonics. So basically math, math, math. And then that's in preparation for philosophy, which is conceptual analysis, basically. And then he, they climb the ladder to understand what he calls the form of the good. And that just means basically what makes everything good and just understanding the truth about everything. You never get to see exactly what that means in concrete terms. He says it's, it will be like gazing into the sun, which of course we can't do, but that's not Socrates for you. He's always pointing you in the right direction and telling you how great it's going to be without giving you the answers that you can take to market as well. As you said, these, we might not want to think about this as a, a guide for life, but a very useful heuristic to measure other systems by. So Socrates is quite concerned about democracy. Uh, and thinks that it's you know one of the worst systems we could have in place. What are the concerns that he has? His concerns with democracy are basically that it's ruled by the mob, and there's a kind of structural ignorance and misrule built into democracy. So it works a little bit like this, and this will be familiar to anyone even who lives in a democracy today. We want the people in charge to know what they're doing. We want them to... I don't know, economics, warfare, intelligence, whatever, social science. There's a million things that you could know that would help you be a good ruler of a modern democracy. Now, as a matter of fact, even if everyone was really quite smart and not an ignorant mob, people don't know everything. Even people who study and get to PhD level, they really know nothing about almost everything. And they know a lot about one tiny little thing. When it comes to deciding how to rule, making a collective decision based on majority, it means that on any given subject, you, the majority is going to be ignorant. It's just a structural fact about specialization and majority choice, right? If you think you have to have specialized knowledge, the majority can't possibly have it about everything. And that means that they can't make a good decision. And they can't even really judge the experts who are going to make a good decision. And we can run into that now with all these issues over uh, the pandemic and who can we trust? And a lot of people don't trust the scientists. And once you break that trust, you don't have any means if you are the democratic populace, if you're just a citizen to evaluate who's the expert, right? If you no longer believe in the credentials, the system gets broken. And if you do, there's still a large amount of trust going on. So you look at what it takes to win a democratic election. It's not that you have a great knowledge of policy and a great knowledge of economics. It's that you're rich, you're good at PR, and uh, you look at on TV, people want to hang out with you. And you have a very good team of advertisers around you. So the problem with democracy is that it is structurally inclined just to pick not the people who are good at ruling. And of course, the, uh, the metaphor that Socrates uses is the ship of state. If there's one person on the ship who knows how to pilot a ship, but they haven't spent all their time learning how to persuade the owner to let them drive the ship, they're never going to get the tiller. They're going to get thrown overboard by their rivals. And that's democracy for you. Something that I'm curious about is whether Plato or Socrates considered the iterative nature of the election process. 
So I can understand that if elections were once off and you were electing through a democratic system, you were electing a dictator who was going to rule for the rest of his lifetime, then it seems like his performance would be irrelevant to that election process because he only gets elected once and there's no knock-on effects from his election now to some future election because he never has to try to be elected again. But we have a system where in most democratic states, the president of that country will run for election a second time. And there's another form of iteration that's involved, which is that president usually runs as the representative of a political party. So if that president does a bad job ruling, then that party looks bad and they are less likely to get their representative in the next time round, whether that be that president or another potential president. So it seems, although uh, Plato's argument makes sense in one context, which would be electing a ruler who rules indefinitely, it wouldn't make sense in our system where there's an iterative election process. You know, I feel like I'm in this odd position of trying to defend a political theory that I'm not sure that Plato himself holds or Socrates, but look, I'm going to have a go. <laughs> And, and say that this argument was not constructed for the election of a one-time lifetime dictator, right? He's talking about Athens. They didn't even have presidents or dictators. This was a matter of being able to make decisions policy by policy, decision by decision. So I think that at least Socrates would say the structural ignorance of democracy and the tendency to always flock around whoever rises to be the leader at this time just contextually, is going to be based on this essential ignorance and emotional nature of democracy. And so even if you iterate that process, you may find that people will time and again not choose what's good for them or who's good for them. And I'm sure there's people in modern democracies who feel the same way. Yeah, there's some sense in which the critique still holds. We think about those that are in power. The case you give for the person who's very charismatic, looks great on TV, sounds a lot like the prior president of the American uh, government, right? And that there's still a call from to, to run again. I, I wonder if what, what those sort of charismatic people have to do really is surround themselves with some kind of class of philosopher kings. So they have to have technocrats around them. They have to have people who actually know what they're doing. And those people wind up in other positions in government. They're going to form part of the civil service. They're going to be there for long periods of time, regardless of which political party is in office. They're going to be there actually ensuring that the ship doesn't hit the rocks. And everybody knows that if you mess with the civil servants too much, you're the one who's going to look foolish. And you can afford to be charismatic and not that smart, as long as you're smart enough to pick the people who know what they're doing. I think it's wonderful that so quickly you've decided to uh, defend Socrates' position, <laughs> which is uh, basically to say, yes, put the technocrats in charge, and uh, the president's not even in charge because if he messes with the technocrats, it won't go well for him. So I do still have some democratic scruples, but I think that argument that you're making would fit right in in Plato's Republic. Okay, so Plato's Republic wouldn't necessarily require a single philosopher king. It could be interpreted as loosely within his kind of vision to have a, a set of rulers, and that set of rulers is composed of a number of philosophers. That's right. So the philosopher kings is a kind of class of people, and they rotate not because they are institutionally required, but because none of them want to rule. 
they would all prefer to be doing philosophy and drawing triangles, but they just feel obliged to come rule the city because they don't want like a worse person to rule them. And so they're always trying to train up the next generation of philosopher kings who are capable of taking over so they can step back. So one of the things that we find with our current political overlords is that they tend to have a, a lust for power and money. But the philosopher kings, the idea is that they don't pursue those goals. They pursue, as you say, virtuous lifestyles, or trying to find out what's true. Is there some sense in which being in power will corrupt you and make it much harder to you know, pursue this genuinely good life? I don't, I, I've never had any power, so <laughs> I can't say it from experience. But I think that there is this fear that power will corrupt, that the second you can get away with anything, you will get away with it. There's the famous Gaiji's ring experiment at the beginning of the book that opens the whole argument. And Glaucon says, what would anyone do with an invisibility? They'd have sex with the queen, kill the king, and take over the city. And that just goes without saying anyone would do that. Now, the rest of the book is saying, okay, what if you could get away with anything? How would you keep these people in control? And what would be a good life for them? And the answer is just the most extravagantly immersive, comprehensive education there is, right? Everything that the young philosopher kings see, every story they hear is censored and calculated to make them love good things and just make them feel uh, repelled by any injustice or lack of virtue. So they're brought up their whole lives to love virtue, to love the city, and then they're protected from all temptation. That's why they can't have any of the property or good food or even their own house or any privacy or their own family because they don't want to allow even a crack of self-interest that their virtue could escape through. If this all goes well, I can imagine it going very well. But are you sure it's going to go well? So how sure are you that those people who control this philosopher king as a child make sure that he learns the right material and that he's not corrupt in any way and that the education is just right and that we inculcate the right values and we create the philosopher king that we want and not the sophist, the self-interested and deceptive, clever person. How sure are we that we're going to produce that? Because it seems like a great risk. Again, I have to say that I just do not think this is like a policy guide, right? His what Socrates keeps saying throughout the book, everyone keeps saying, look, these are such silly, extravagant policies. You would never pull this off. He's okay. Is it possible? We just want to have this as a model in their mind. We're not trying to build this on earth. We're just trying to say, what would it take to construct this ideal? And then maybe we can do something in life that somehow approximates that or is related to that. But I think you're certainly right to say, human education and human reproduction is so complicated that you're never going to get it absolutely perfect. Socrates, when he describes the degeneration of the different regimes, they build this perfect regime. They're like, okay, what happens when it falls apart? And Glaucon says, what do you mean fall apart? It's perfect. And Socrates says, nothing's perfect. Even this is eventually going to degenerate. The, their eugenics program that they're going to be running is going to fall apart. They're not going to be able to tell gold souls from silver souls and slowly it'll descend into regimes that are actually familiar from existence on earth. But this regime is probably never existed and probably never will. It's there as a model. Okay, but, but here's the problem, right? If every time there's a, 
an objection to the accounts, he says, well, hold on, this isn't a real policy guide. This is an ideal, it's in some ways metaphorical, it's not literal. And then we want to pin him down. We say, okay, fine, you can have your ideal metaphorical guide, which is not supposed to be literally implemented. What should we literally implement? Then what's the answer? What politics does Socrates think that the Athenians should literally implement? Well, look, I, I definitely cannot give you a definitive answer to that question. This is one of the most vexed questions of Plato's studies. And so what I can say is that I don't really think it's a policy guide. Socrates isn't saying that, but I'm saying that just because of my, my reading of the book. I think that he would hope that people could keep these considerations in mind, all the problems that these extreme policies illustrate. If it's the case that like the perfect education will require all this protection from all temptation, all particular interest, maybe that might call attention to the idea that people are governed by particular interest and we should put some kind of institutions or policies in place to protect them. But on the whole, I think that Socrates and Plato would be fairly pessimistic about the possibility of having a genuinely virtuous society. You could probably put in some laws that make it so people don't hurt each other as much, but you're not going to get anywhere near the lawless rule of philosopher kings always for the good of everyone. So on the one hand, you've got, as you say, a method to try and reach the good life as a society. And you might say, look, we, those methods aren't going to work for a series of practical reasons. Maybe people are going to try and experiment with some of those methods. The one that you hinted at earlier is the eugenics program. So you said, let's take <laughs> the best people in our society and let's get them to breed with each other. And that is going to produce a super race of people who are going to have the best stock and we're then going to educate them with the best stuff as well. So there's going to be this mixture of nature and nurture, and that's going to ensure that we have good people instead of selectively breeding for terrible people who we won't be able to educate anyway. But let's think about, besides the kind of processes that you use, are the, the norms that he's aiming for good? Are these things actually worth striving for? So in the beginning, you talk about private property is a trap. If you care about the pleasures of the body, those aren't really worthwhile. The things that matter are really philosophy, like it's this contemplative life. Can we evaluate that? Are those the kinds of things that actually would make life good? Oh, okay. When I read The Republic, when I think of the life of the philosopher kings, and I think most people think this, it's not really for me. But I didn't grow up with this perfect musical education that all these people would. And presumably, I'm already somewhat corrupt for having grown up in an actual democracy, which is the second worst form of government, according to Plato. Very far from virtue. So is it a good life worth striving for? I'll give you something of the argument that he gives to say that it is. Plato thinks that justice in the good life consists of having your soul in a certain shape. Basically, you want reason in charge. Your emotions, your pride, your spirit, as it were, supporting reason, and then both of those controlling your appetites. You should still have appetites. You should still have emotions, but ultimately it should be governed by reason because that can take into account your good as an overall person. So that way you don't go on like some life-ruining bender or due to a desire for revenge, ruin the life of yourself and your family. So he thinks the best life is where it's in that balance. And the constant threat is that your appetites will spin out of control. One thing will lead to another. You'll need to get richer and richer. You wind up like in a Scarface situation where you have it all, but you're firing a machine gun, you got a face full of cocaine and you've lost your girlfriend. Bad news, 
we know what happens in these stories about power and desires running out of control. So the specific life he described is not going to sound appealing to anyone, but that's what you have to do if you want to be sure that the other thing isn't going to happen. If you want to make sure that reason is in charge and the appetites are kept under control, you need as much social help as you can. That's why there might be laws against certain drugs and certain things that while doing it once might not harm you, might ultimately lead down a path to a bad life. So do I want the life of the philosopher king? No, but maybe trying to make the abstemious life of the philosopher appealing is something that like uh, 20 year old boys need to hear. Because this argument isn't necessarily for us. It's for Glaucon, this like ambitious young man who's like full of desire and wants to be a tyrant. Uh, and maybe he needs to hear about the beauty of the monk, abstemious philosopher life. It sounds like the value of this is in the discussion more than in the implementation. Because every time we say, well, let's implement it and think about what could go wrong, you say, wait, hold on, I never said implement it. This is not a policy guide. I'm not going to really enjoy this if it happened to me. And maybe no one would enjoy this if it happened to them. We can't actually do this, but it's in the discussion mm -hmm. of what this ideal person would be like, or this ideal city would be like, or this ideal ruler would be like, that we learn about ways in which we might alter our values today and approximate or aim towards or course correct in a way that gets us to where we ideally want to be. Yeah, I would say that's absolutely correct. And I think that what Plato is trying to do and what Socrates tried to do his whole life is not to give anyone the recipe for virtue, but to get these discussions started, get people thinking about it and open their minds in this way. Although, I would just add that maybe we should consider the example of Socrates, because here's a guy who, by accounts, really dug the things he was pushing in the Republic. He loved contemplating, right? There are these stories about where he would just get a thought and then stand still all night long, awake, just thinking, and then be like, ah, in the morning and walk off. He didn't really do anything for money. His kind of private life and wealth fell apart because all he wanted to do was sit around discussing the good ethics, stuff like that. So I do think that the life of the philosopher can actually be very satisfying for some people, but we might add also with Socrates in particular, he could only live that life in Athens. It was only in a democracy where he had so many people to learn from and so many people to talk to where he could engage in this kind of life. Whereas if he had grown up in the city that they designed the Republic, there's really nothing to talk about because everyone thinks the same thing, which is whatever the truth is. So in your show, you talk about the Republic as being a really different kind of philosophical treatise. So you say there's some books that are like a fortress. They have all the arguments in favor of the position that they're trying to justify. And at the end of it, you walk away going, I know what the position is and I know what someone's trying to defend. And I think you give the example of Hobbes' Leviathan, or we might think of Rawls's theory of justice. There's something amazing about the Republic. It's such a beautiful read. It's a compelling read. And it's a thing that's been taught for hundreds of years and is still a joy to engage with, partly because it's so strange, but partly because of the format. This idea of 
having an inquiry, of having people ask each other questions, of opening up ideas that aren't necessarily finalized. The, the book has generated thousands of books because it got someone going, what is justice? What is it to know things? What gives things intrinsic value? What would a what good society look like? Is democracy a good idea? Would it be better to have some sort of uh, benighted dictator look after all of us? All those questions are just wonderful questions. As Jason points out, this notion that you can engage with through dialogue really is part of the project of our show. We're trying to get people on to fight with them as vigorous as we can, even when we agree with them wholeheartedly, we disagree with them on purpose. And because we think in that process, we can find out what's actually true, what's worthwhile. Some of the stuff really is just meant to be good in theory and enjoyed for its own sake. And some of it is meant to compel people into action. We have an episode on whether you should eat meat. And we think that some people are going to walk away changing their minds. Some vegetarians are going to go, you know what? I think I can eat a steak after this instead. Others are going to go, I don't think I can eat that chicken anymore. I think it's wrong. There are going to be consequences to listen to these conversations. And we, we, gather that some people will have their own little internal dialogue. They'll listen to this and they'll be a, a participant in some way. They'll think, there was something that wasn't asked and I would have asked this. And then they get to do it. They get to write in the comments and they can hear from us and they can hear from others in that philosophical community. I'm very intrigued by what you've been doing in terms of your work. And you've got this wonderful 13-part series on the Republic, but it's only part of what you've been doing. Can you tell us a bit more about the philosophical enterprise that you're involved in? Yeah, I'd love to. So this all started... I like philosophy. I like podcasts. I'm like, why don't I do one? And I had a friend, still have a friend, and we're like, we'll, we'll just do the canon. We'll start with Plato. We'll work our way through. We'll go in depth, maybe an episode per book of Republic. He realized very early on that it was going to be way too much work for him to want to do. So he quit. And then Plato is just supposed to be a first step in the project. But it, that first step wound up taking a year and a half. So that kind of spiraled out of control. But the idea is to explain them in a way that I would have had them explained to me as an interested undergraduate or as an interested layperson. Because we say that Plato's Republic is a great read and a compelling read, but it is a hard read. Like going back to it to write this podcast, I was I thought, yeah, compared to some of the other philosophy books, compared to Hegel, it's a breeze, but but it's actually quite difficult. And if I just had someone explain it to me in a much more straightforward way, not nine steps of uh, scho scholarly argument ahead, it would have been a lot easier for me to get into. So my aim in good in theory is to try to do that both with like big texts and just interesting theoretical ideas, contemporary texts, just to find ways to explain them in a way that, that makes me remember why they matter makes me remember the genuine human interest I had in, in them rather than these specialist interests that I developed after like years of, of working in the field. So that means doing the stuff on the Republic and the Apology, which was great fun. I want to do a shorter, hopefully, uh, treatment of Hobbes' Leviathan. And I like to throw in a lot of interviews. In fact, I have, I have an internal series called Thought Lab, which much like Brain and Vat, starts with a thought experiment and me, me, and, a, me and a friend spend half an hour discussing them. So yeah, the podcast is about both reading texts and ideas out in a way that is for actual humans not specialized in scholarly work. I'm very glad to hear that one of us is a lawyer, so we can issue summons and sue you for copying our concept. But then the fact <laughs> that you had to go and do it better than us, that your voice is better, that like your art on the show is so wonderful. This is very hard for us to hear. I would like to give a shout out to uh, Sep, who works with me on the show. She is an old friend of mine from our Oxford MPhil, and she does all the episode art. So 
all that like great stuff on the Republic where she was doing like fascist propaganda posters. And there's a great one where there's this Goya, but remix with Lisa Frank. I love that stuff. And that's, uh, and yeah, shout out. So the original idea for Brand Nevada was we were going to call it Illustrated Thought Experiments. And the idea was to have um, graphic novelists take a thought experiment and visualize it. And I just love the the art that you have for your show. It's like just so compelling and arresting and beautiful and strange. And that Goya image in particular is just very striking. We've we've used that Goya in one of our episodes as well. And we have Amanda Ballin, who's an artist and a philosopher, talking about the grotesque in art and how it can compel us and repulse us at the same time. Nice. Yeah, I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to listen to that episode ahead of ahead of spooky season. So I I wonder more about Plato's project. Are there other things that we can learn from it that where we can feel like this is a text worth spending time with? As you say, there are elements of it that are tricky, and you've done something amazing with it because you've got voice actors and you're doing it justice in terms of its format. What are the ideas for you that think resonate best with us? Okay. You mentioned earlier that I say it's a different kind of text because a lot of texts are like what I call argument fortresses, like Leviathan or Theory of Justice. And I say that Republic is more like a fantastic voyage. It's a magic carpet ride all over the place, different ideas. They pick them up, they put them down. You're left sitting there saying, what, this doesn't make any sense. You can't implement this. What do you really mean, Socrates? But the payoff is it's just incredibly fertile. Any chapter in here, people have come up with like ideas from and developed and and thought about it. So to me, there's infinite takeaways from Republic. I often think about the the structure of the soul, right? So his model that, that there's these three components of the soul, there's reason, there's your appetite in the middle, there's thumos, there's spirit. And that's an ambiguous one. And it may seem silly that uh, someone in the 21st century, after a couple hundred years of psychological scholarship, is still looking back to Plato for his model of human psychology, but I've, I've found it compelling. I found it helps me understand people, and if people can do the astrology, then I can go with Plato. And I would add, so did Freud. He took a lot of inspiration from Plato's model of the soul. So that's one. I think that book 10, his discussion of poetry and how we relate to media and art, I think about all the time because he lays out this understanding of how we relate to art, which is that we have a emotional sweet tooth. So if you think about how we naturally evolutionarily go towards junk food, we eat fatty sweet foods, and that is eventually bad for our health. I think Socrates would say we have the same emotional thing about art. And that's why we love things like Homer, that people are crying and it's very violent and it's emotionally incredibly juicy, but this just awakens things in us that ultimately are going to make us worse people and make it harder for us to live. That's another big one that I think of all the time. And if I start thinking book through book, I could go on, but that's the beauty of the Republic. You're going to take away different things and even after you've put it away for years, new things might bubble up as you reach different situations in your life. So something I'm curious about and have always been whenever I've studied history of philosophy is there are these ideas, which as you say, and Mark has said, have spurred massive amounts of thought from future thinkers, right? So Freud, for example, 
drew on Plato's notion of the soul when he talked about the id and the ego and the superego. So he also has this tripartite account of human psyche. Now, the question is, why should we go back to the progenitor of this thinking to learn more about our current circumstance rather than look at the secondary sources, the more recent interpretations or adaptations? Is there not more value in the adaptations than there is in the original? I am not a purist that says you always have to go back to the original. I think absolutely read the adaptations. The reason, if, if I'm quite honest, the reason I went to the original is just because I happened to be studying political theory and philosophy as a student. And I'm sure if I was a student of, I don't know, the history of psychology, I would have read more Freud. Or if I was a student of psychology, I'd read more recent stuff. And I, I do read a fair amount of like psych, psychological books too. But I do still think there's a value in it. And partly the value comes especially because it's so far away and foreign. So history of philosophy, historical texts, to be able to step out of our world and all our assumptions, it takes longer. You have to build up a view of what it was like in Athens and their concerns and how these books might have been read in context. But when you do, I find that gives you a much richer alternative perspective than just, say, a journal article, an absolutely current state-of-the-art journal article in psychology right now can tell you something that is reliable, maybe, but completely framed by our assumptions. But it takes an alien text from another world to help us imagine another world and then view our own world like from that vantage point. I think that is part of the, the big advantage of going back to originals and uh, the, the his, going through the history of philosophy. So I suppose... What's interesting about the sort of style is that you know, modern philosophy is branched into two different areas. So you've got the analytics who are trying to persuade you of something that are often focusing on some small modification of an existing view so that we can incrementally learn new things. Then you've got the continentalists who I think are basically brainwashing children with garbage and should be expelled from the school of philosophy. And in some ways, both have grown out of, let's say, of ancient traditions or out of you know late traditions like Kant. But what's interesting is that very few have kept up that methodology of dialogue. It's rare for us to see people in dialogue. But if you're sitting in a philosophy seminar, that's where all the work happens. So it's in the debate, it's in the discussion, it's in the refining, but we don't find people using it as a device in their books. The essays tend to be short, sharp, to the point, and someone else writes a counter essay, and so there's a, a different kind of dialogue. Uh, do you think there's something special about keeping up that format, about having these live discussions? As for the format of dialogue, yes. I do think there is something really special about it. And let me distinguish between two kinds. You were talking about the dialogue you get in a seminar room between different people. And uh, that is where you say all the real work happens. And I think that's right. I think that's like Socrates's art rather than Plato's. That you're just going out there, you're having those discussions live, testing your assumptions, testing your arguments and trying to get somewhere, or even just like trying to find out that you're lost. And when you realize that leads to more thinking. And that has a very different effect and mood than just the philosophical treatise that sets out the airtight argument in a single book to tell you what is. There's also the, the philosophical dialogue as Plato writes it, right? And this is neither one because this is a single author, but their characters are engaging in that. And I think that is the one that you really don't see very much of, but 
when it's done well, I think is really exciting. Like I said, it's very rare, but you would see this, I guess, in art, like in movies. I was thinking also of, I don't know if you've heard of a YouTube channel called ContraPoints. ContraPoints does philosophy stuff. And in her earlier videos, lately they've mostly been monologues, but in her earlier videos, she would stage legitimate philosophical dialogues with different characters holding different opinions, all played by her. And it had, to me, a really exciting philosophical effect. You did have people in the comments not sure which side she was on, and that eventually got her into trouble. I think that what she did was she captured this form of the dialogue that you seldom see done. It always feels so didactic, but because it didn't seem like she was leading to a specific conclusion, which all philosophers, professional philosophers are trained to do, but instead just depicting the discussion and the aporia and the like incompleteness of different opinions, I think that's a tremendously valuable thing. And I wish there were more people who were, who were doing it well. Yeah, you hint at this other way in which you can explore ideas that's less goal-driven, right? Which is in art. So often you can be watching something where the ideas are explored and the film or the play isn't taking a position. It's just expressing the views and you're having to do a lot of the work as the viewer. Uh, and there's something beautiful about that. And I think a lot of the ways that people get into philosophy isn't, it's probably very unlikely that as a child you're reading any academic philosophy text, but you might be watching a film that has philosophical ideas baked into it and it excites your mind and you say, well, I want to learn more about this. And it guides you towards those serious books. Yep, look, I think that's quite right. There also might be like people get the idea somehow contract the idea of what it is to be an intellectual and are attracted to it for that reason. But I don't know. People start philosophy for all kinds of reasons. I don't want to guess, but I find it difficult to imagine that someone picked up an article by Derek Parfit and was like, holy moly, this is for me. This is what I'm doing for the rest of my life. Yeah, they're more likely to have watched an episode of Star Trek and seen the teleporters and thought that was pretty cool. And Parfit's going to yeah. be inspired by that and is going to have led to the work of, of hundreds of other philosophers exploring interesting, weird and wonderful thought experiments. Right, exactly. I actually had that moment with Derek Parfit, by the way. <laughs> exactly why I didn't want to project or guess <laughs> how people got into it. Yeah, I, I, I love his work. I had that moment with Susan Wolfe as well, which is one of the latest episodes on your show. Yeah, I find some of those arguments so compelling. Not necessarily agree with everything in those arguments, although it just so happens with the Susan Wolfe argument I do, and much of the Derek Parfit arguments I do as well. But I, I find them so compelling and so clear and precise that it just, it convinces me that I'm in the right field. I have had moments reading Plato where it's like tucking in under a warm blanket. And I felt transported, as you say, it's, it's magical fantasy. But in addition to that, I felt swaddled in the wonders of ideas. But it was a distinct experience to the Parfit experience and the Susan Wolfe experience. Those experiences, it seemed like they were giving this very precise, very clear argument, as you say, an argument fortress. And my personality is such that I love that. I think it's wonderful. Whereas the Plato feeling was more of a, a narrative feeling than a, a feeling that, okay, here's an incredible idea, a single idea that's been so well expressed and defended. I can imbibe that. I can take on that as part of my identity and believe that. I never felt that with reading Plato. You know, for me, I think of the things that stuck with me, and it's the things from Republic I mentioned, or 
oddly enough, in the Gorgias, I think it's when Callicles tells Socrates, hey, listen, philosophy is okay when you're young, but anyone who pursues it into their adulthood is there's something wrong with them. And I was reading that right before I, I left to go to grad school. And I was like, I think he's right. And there are these, for me, it was more the moments of doubt and a perspective shift than it was these moments of absolute clarity. So one of my other great historical favorites that got me into it was Rousseau. And he's famously difficult to interpret. And I really like the Emil rather than say the social contract. And so it wasn't like this straightforward, clear argument. It was more like, I am just going to describe the world in a perspective that you haven't seen before. And so that to me is what opens up like new vistas um, and new perspectives. And that's what excited me about the field. Whereas I find a very tight argument like Peter Singer is just sometimes just quite annoying. One of the most compelling parts of Plato that I think a lot of non-philosophers will recall, and it's in the Republic, is uh, the allegory of the cave. This sort of idea that people are really not engaging with reality, that they're, all they're seeing are shadows and distortions. And that when you're able to leave that world and confront reality, then you're leading a life that's worthwhile. Even if that world is going to be more dangerous, quite shocking in a lot of ways, and doesn't have the swaddling effect of, of the cave and the warm fire. Yeah, I think that the allegory of the cave is probably one of the most arresting and beautiful images in the history of philosophy. It is the one thing that when I talk Plato to people, like that's what they bring up. If they find out I'm doing a podcast about Republic or Plato at all, it's always the allegory of the cave. And I think it's just because it's so versatile, like any kind of awakening, any kind of matrix, red pill, spiritual scales falling from your eyes, enlightenment experience can be fit into the cave allegory somehow. And so it's quite relatable. And I think it is really, uh, really quite interesting. Cliff, I want to thank you so much for joining us on the show today. It's been a delightful conversation. It's wonderful to talk about a great text and a great philosopher and to do it with someone who is in this uh, edutainment field where we can poison young minds and corrupt the youth. Yeah, hopefully we are never called to account for it like Socrates was. I don't feel like drinking the hemlock just yet. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, guys. It's been really fun. And yeah, I really appreciate you having me on your pod and uh, would like to say I've really been enjoying listening to it too.